You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 216, Chickamauga Creek. Over the spring of 1779, the southern colonies were struggling to mount a defense against the British operating out of Savannah. The British had hoped to enlist a Tory army made up of loyalists in the southern colonies. Their efforts to date, though, had proven disappointing. While the British had the advantage in the south, leaders knew that even if they took key cities like Savannah and Charleston, they could not maintain control over the colony unless large numbers of loyalists backed them up. The British simply could not afford to keep large standing armies of regulars all over North America. It was simply too expensive. In their search for allies, the British focused on Indian tribes. Native tribes had long-standing disputes with colonies, that seemed to have an insatiable hunger for more and more western lands. British agents appealed to those tribes, arguing that the king had proclaimed western lands off-limits to new settlements, but that Americans were ignoring that proclamation. The only way for tribes to protect their land was to back the king and help put down this rebellion. In past episodes, I've talked about the Mohawk and other tribes in New York and Canada who backed the British. I've also discussed some of the Delaware, Mingo, Shawnee, and other Mid-Atlantic tribes who were doing the same. Now, those cases led to mixed results. Usually, after a few massacres, the Patriots sent out a larger force to crush and dispel the Loyalist tribes and remove them as a threat to the region. This week, we're going to look at the Cherokee, who at this time lived in the areas to the west of Virginia, the Carolinas, and Georgia. I've already talked about two other Cherokee uprisings in this podcast. One occurred in 1760, near the end of the French and Indian War. That led to the destruction of a bunch of Cherokee villages and a treaty where the Cherokee were forced to cede much of their lands to North Carolina. See episode 15 for more details on that one. Then again, in the summer of 1776, the Cherokee rose up again at the instigation of British agents. The agents assured the Cherokee that without British support, the colonists would be easier to defeat and they could recapture some of their tribal lands. The Patriot governments, however, were able to lay waste to Cherokee lands. The Cherokee were forced to sign the treaties of Long Island of Holston and DeWitt's Corner, where they ceded millions more acres of territory to Virginia and the Carolinas. For more on that incident, see episode 102. Many of the Cherokee warriors who had fought in 1776 were not happy with the treaties signed by some of the other chiefs. Among them was a Cherokee chief whom I've mentioned before by the name of Dragging Canoe, also known as Tsiu Gansini, and I look forward to your emails telling me how badly I mispronounced that name. As a young warrior from what is today southeastern Tennessee, 
Dragging Canoe fought in the Cherokee Wars of 1760 and was unhappy with the appeasers who had given up lands to end that war. He fought as a leader in the 1776 uprising, but refused to endorse any of the treaties that ended that fighting and which had ceded more land, even though his father, Ata Kula Kula, or Little Carpenter, who was another Cherokee chief, agreed to the treaty. Dragging Canoe broke away from the larger Cherokee tribe at that time. He formed what became known as the Chickamauga Cherokee, who settled farther west along the Chickamauga Creek. Unlike the larger Cherokee tribe that accepted their losses and tried to maintain a peaceful coexistence with the settlers, the Chickamauga continued to raid frontier settlements and kill settlers in the years following. Among the settlers that the warriors killed in 1777 were David and Elizabeth Crockett. At the time, their son, John Crockett, was away on militia duty. John would go on to have a son of his own, whom he named after his father. That grandson, Davy Crockett, would become rather famous in his own right decades later at the Alamo. As I said, with the continued low-level fighting, Dragging Canoe had to move west to keep the tribe's women and children away from the North Carolina settlers, moving about 80 miles west to an area known as Chickamauga Creek. There, his people established new villages and tried to rebuild their lives. He still hoped that the Cherokee would recapture their old lands to the east when the opportunity arose. When British Lieutenant Governor Henry Hamilton called on tribes along the western frontier to join an effort to attack the Patriots, Dragging Canoe and his Chickamauga Cherokee warriors answered the call. Now, Hamilton, who I discussed a few weeks ago, was operating out of Detroit, but took responsibility for the entire western frontier, operating as far south as present-day Tennessee. Over the winter, Hamilton had traveled down to Fort Vincennes as part of his overall effort to exert British influence and encourage native tribes to combine and fight against the Patriot settlements. Dragging Canoe's warriors were further south and did not participate in the fighting over Fort Vincennes. However, British agents had provided them with arms and supplies, most of which moved north from Pensacola in West Florida. By the spring of 1779, Dragging Canoe had amassed a force of about 1,000 warriors. Living nearby was John MacDonald, a Scotsman who had settled with his family on Chickamauga Creek years earlier. MacDonald had immigrated to South Carolina and almost immediately began trading with the Cherokee. He married a woman who was half Cherokee and received a commission as the British Assistant Superintendent for Indian Affairs. His trading post became a commissary for local tribes and an outpost for the British government. As Dragging Canoe prepared for a campaign against the Patriots, MacDonald became his chief supplier. British agents in Pensacola sent guns, ammunition, wagons, cattle, and other supplies for a military campaign. As the British in Savannah moved into the Carolinas along the coast, Dragging Canoe's warriors could attack along the Carolina frontier. Word of the potential Indian threat reached the Patriots in early 1779. Another Scottish trader from the region, Ellis Harlan, heard rumors of Dragging Canoe's plans and witnessed warriors who were gathering around Chickamauga Creek. Harlan made his way to a frontier settlement on Holston Creek in what is today Upper East Tennessee. 
he informed Colonel Evan Shelby of the plans. Shelby was an experienced Indian fighter. As a boy, he had immigrated to America from Wales with his parents. They had settled on the Pennsylvania frontier. As an adult, Shelby established his own farm on the Maryland frontier, where he also served as a militia officer. He served as a scout for the Braddock campaign, and later supervised the surveying and building of the Forbes Road, which allowed British forces to reach Fort Duquesne from Pennsylvania, a plan that a young Colonel George Washington had vehemently opposed. Following the war, Shelby made a living as a fur trader. But the native uprising known as Pontiac's Rebellion forced Shelby to suspend his business since traders could not operate in the area. He also lost his business records in a fire, thus making it impossible for him to collect his business debts. Eventually, the situation forced him to sell his Maryland farm. Shelby then moved further south to western lands along the Virginia-North Carolina border. There, he built a small fort and trading post, which supplied colonists who were moving into western lands. In 1774, Shelby served as a militia captain and helped organize the effort to put down another Indian uprising. He commanded troops at the Battle of Point Pleasant, which later became known as Lord Dunmore's War. Shelby also took a leadership role in the Patriot cause on the frontier. In January 1775, he signed the Fincastle Resolves, which supported the Continental Congress. He also served on a committee of safety to enforce boycotts against British goods. When the war began, Shelby considered riding to Boston to join George Washington. The two men had known each other for decades since their days on the Braddock campaign. However, Governor Patrick Henry urged Shelby to remain in Virginia and help organize Virginia's frontier. He received a commission to the rank of major in 1776 and led militiamen against the Cherokee in the Tennessee Valley. That was the fighting that forced the Cherokee to cede even more land and which had set Dragon Canoe on the warpath. In 1777, Shelby was appointed colonel and commanded militia against the Chickamauga tribe. For the next few years, Shelby remained active in the effort to suppress Indian raids in the region. After being alerted to the growing threat from Dragon Canoe, Shelby alerted Virginia Governor Patrick Henry and North Carolina Governor Richard Caswell. Shelby also received intelligence from Captain James Robertson, who was the Indian agent for North Carolina, and from Joseph Martin, agent for Virginia. At this time, Colonel Shelby served in the Virginia militia. A later survey would establish that his plantation was actually in North Carolina, but in 1779 he thought it was in Virginia and served under that state's militia. In fact, the area where he lived was so confused between Virginia and North Carolina that it was sometimes called the Squabble State. Many veterans of the fight in their pension claims much later state that they didn't know whether they were serving in the Virginia or North Carolina militia. They state only that they knew the names of the local commanding officers. There was no real fight between the states at this time. There just wasn't a good survey to confirm which state they were located. Everyone just fought alongside their neighbors. As I said, a later survey would confirm that the bulk of Shelby's land was in North Carolina and he would later hold a commission in the North Carolina militia. That's why he is often held up as a North Carolina hero of the Revolution. 
But in 1779, Virginia militia Colonel Shelby, as I said, alerted governors of both states to the danger of a major Indian attack being organized. Despite these alerts, the focus of the governors was more on the impending British offensive into South Carolina. They could not afford to provide any support in terms of men or money to suppress the imminent attack by Dragon Canoe. So, Colonel Shelby had to raise a force from the local militia and self-finance the campaign. Much of that funding came from Shelby's son, Captain Isaac Shelby, who served as commissary officer for the campaign and used his personal funds to provide supplies for the militia army, hoping to be paid back after the campaign succeeded. Colonel Shelby organized local meetings to discuss their options. He and his neighbors recognized the need to attack first before the organized warriors went on an offensive against their towns and villages. Many of the local militia were already away in the Carolinas with General Benjamin Lincoln, but Shelby managed to scrape together a fighting force of about 350 men. Shelby did manage to get some additional support. Militia Colonel John Montgomery was from the same area of the Virginia frontier. Montgomery came from an old Virginia family and had spent years exploring the backcountry. He also was an ardent patriot who had signed the Fincastle Resolves along with Shelby back in 1775, so the two men had worked together before. Montgomery had left his home in the area the prior year as a militia captain. He had led a company to fight under George Rogers Clark to capture Fort Vincennes and to secure the Illinois Territory for Virginia. Clark had promoted him to lieutenant colonel and gave him a larger command. After securing Fort Vincennes and capturing the British governor Henry Hamilton in late February, Clark received Shelby's call for support in his campaign against Dragon Canoe. Clark dispatched Montgomery with about 150 men to join Shelby. With Montgomery's men joining with Shelby's, they had assembled a total force of around 500. Shelby called on his militia to rally at a point on Big Creek near modern-day Rogersville, Tennessee. The force gathered there on March 20th. There, his volunteers spent several weeks building canoes in order to make their way to the Cherokee village. By April 10th, the fleet embarked down the Tennessee River, led by local guide John Hudson. The force made good time paddling downriver, making the 180-mile journey in about three days. The men moved down the Tennessee River to the mouth of Chickamauga Creek. There, the force captured an Indian, whom they forced to guide them to the main village. The force managed to surprise the Indians, who had not expected an attack. According to at least one account, Dragon Canoe was not even present for the fighting. He was likely out on a recruiting mission in preparation for the offensive that he had planned for later that spring. A great many of the 1,000 warriors who were expected to gather were not there yet either. The villages were largely populated by women and children, along with British supplies that were intended for the spring offensive. Most of the warriors who were in the area fled into the mountains without a fight. Shelby's men discovered a trove of supplies that the British agents had gathered for the spring offensive. The Virginians were able to capture or destroy them, and also destroyed the villages along the creek. This included the destruction of McDonald's trading post. 
the militia continued its rampage, looting and burning 11 villages along Chickamauga Creek. As I said, the warriors were not really ready for a fight, and those who were in the villages were there with women and children. So for the most part, they focused on saving their families and did not engage in combat with the raiders. Shelby and his men went about their business, seizing and destroying tons of supplies. The raiders helped themselves to whatever they could carry, driving off hundreds of cattle and horses as well. They captured large numbers of furs. It was later estimated that the militia returned with about 20,000 to 25,000 pounds sterling worth of supplies. Whatever they could not take with them, they burned. After spending about two weeks looting and destroying anything they could find, Shelby prepared to return home. Paddling downriver had been quick and easy. Taking all their captured supplies upriver would be more difficult. Shelby ordered the boats destroyed. His men would take the cattle, horses, and wagons overland on their journey home. The return trip took longer, and there were some reports that the men lacked enough provisions and grew hungry. Even so, the force made it back to their communities along the Holston without suffering any sort of counterattack. The march also allowed the men to get a look at the wilderness area that makes up much of modern-day eastern Tennessee. With the Cherokee dispersed, many militiamen took advantage of the opportunity to move their families onto new farms in this area. The Chickamauga expedition was considered an unqualified success for the Americans. The Continental Congress passed a resolution thanking Colonel Shelby for his efforts in commanding the successful campaign to end the Indian threat. Between Clark's taking of Fort Vincennes a short time earlier, which led to the capture of British Governor Henry Hamilton, and Shelby's Chickamauga expedition, the Americans had effectively snuffed out any organized threat along the southern frontier. While the campaign met its immediate goal, it did not destroy the larger Indian threat. Dragon Canoe and the other chiefs saw it as a setback. They did not see it as a reason to give up their fight. The warriors were not killed or captured. Most were prepared to continue the fight. MacDonald reported personal losses of over 100 cattle and 150 horses, as well as 20,000 bushels of grain. His trading post had been destroyed, and rather than rebuild at the current site, MacDonald moved farther south down the Tennessee River to a new location, farther away from the settlers. Dragon Canoe and others also moved further downriver. These new villages later became known as the Five Lower Towns of the Cherokee, and they remained in use well into the Federal era. Without the supplies needed for the offensive, Dragon Canoe and his warriors did not go on their planned attacks that spring. But neither did they cede anything or admit to defeat. The warriors would spend most of the remainder of 1779 fighting off a stream of Virginia settlers who were moving into the Tennessee Valley. Dragon Canoe set up a blockage on the Tennessee River to prevent settlers from traveling inland by water, but his blockade only had limited success. Some historians have argued that the Chickamauga expedition does not get its full just recognition because it was just fought by militia and that there are few written records of the actual attacks. The expedition was valuable, but mostly as a way of delaying any large organized attack by the Cherokee. 
However, the campaign also did not dissuade the Cherokee underdragging canoe from continued smaller attacks on frontier settlements in the region. Next week, we head back to Europe. Britain's situation grows even more desperate when Spain finally enters the war. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks as always to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and George Hunter. Thanks also to Greg P. and Mimi Wood, who joined on Patreon as standard bearers last month. You guys can look forward to receiving your first flag magnet this month, along with my gratitude for your support of this podcast. For the many folks who have made an ongoing commitment to help me cover my costs by supporting me on Patreon, I really appreciate it. You can join me for as little as $2 a month, and every bit helps. Just go to patreon.com and look up American Revolution Podcast to see how you can join the American Revolution. Thanks also to Kaylee Peach for a one-time gift via PayPal. Anyone who wants to make a one-time gift, either on PayPal or Venmo, I have links on my website for doing so, and your support is much appreciated as well. This week, we looked at the Chickamauga Indians, which started as a radical splinter group from the Cherokee. Dragging Canoe and his warriors would battle the settlers well after the revolution ended. Dragging Canoe himself died in 1792, possibly of a heart attack uh, around age 53 or 54. His death followed an all-night party to celebrate an alliance with the Choctaw and Muscogee tribes. He would never come to peace with the settlers in the region. Following Dragging Canoe's death, the Chickamauga continued as a tribe, growing but also moving south and west as settlements continued to push them. Eventually, many of the Chickamauga settled in northern Georgia, which later became the site of a famous Civil War battle. By that time, of course, the Chickamauga Indians were long gone. They had been pushed into Alabama, and then from there they had agreed to accept lands west of the Mississippi in what eventually became Missouri and Arkansas. By the Jacksonian era, the government was trying to force them to go to Oklahoma with the rest of the Cherokee, but most of the Chickamauga refused to do so. 
The federal government never recognized the Chickamauga as a tribe separate from the Cherokee and considered them all bound by Cherokee treaties. The states where they continued to live made life more and more hostile for them. Missouri actually put laws in place making it illegal for any Indian to be in the state under pain of death or imprisonment. In Arkansas, state officials could seize the land if the owner was found speaking in the Cherokee language. For those who remained in those areas, all they could pretty much do was lay low. They didn't even have the basic rights of American citizenship in the 19th century. That didn't happen until 1924, when the federal government granted American citizenship to all Native Americans who were living within its borders. And of course, after that, they did continue to suffer discrimination even as American citizens. Such is the sad history of the Chickamauga, as with most Native Americans. On the other side, Colonel Evan Shelby remained a militia commander, later receiving a commission as brigadier from North Carolina. His first wife had died by 1779. However, Shelby remarried in the 1780s, when he was in his late 60s, and he had three more children before he died in 1794. After the war, Shelby was actually selected to become governor of a new state called Franklin, which was attempting to break away from North Carolina. Shelby, however, opposed the movement and declined to accept the offer. Shelby's son, who I also mentioned in the main show, Captain Isaac Shelby, served as a captain in the 1779 expedition and had helped finance the campaign. He would continue as a militia officer and would play a key role at the Battle of Kings Mountain several years later, and we'll be sure to get to that at the appropriate time. After the war, Shelby received land in Kentucky for his service during the war. He settled there and was elected the state's first governor. He retired from public life after one term. However, when the nation moved to war with Britain once again in 1812, Shelby agreed to serve as governor a second time. During the War of 1812, Shelby served as military commander at the Battle of the Thames. Following the war, he returned to private life, rejecting an offer to serve as President Madison's Secretary of War. Shelby County, Kentucky, as well as Shelby counties in six other states, and also numerous towns, are all named for Isaac Shelby. Another person I mentioned this week, John Montgomery, received land in what became Tennessee. He founded the town of Clarksville and served as its first sheriff. The town sits in Montgomery County, which is named after him. He continued to spend most of his life in campaigns against the Indians. In 1794, while on a hunting expedition in Kentucky, he was ambushed by a group of Indians and killed. My book recommendation this week is about the Chickamauga. It's called Heart of the Eagle. Dragging Canoe and the Emergence of the Chickamauga Confederacy by Brent Cox. The book is relatively short, under 300 pages total, and not just looks at Dragging Canoe and origins, but what happened to the tribe over time and into the 19th century. The author of the book, Brent Cox, is also known as Yanusti, uh, is a Chickamauga. He taught Native American studies for a time at the University of Tennessee at Martin, and at Jackson State Community College. Now, the book is out of print and hard to find, but if you can get a copy, I think it's worth a look. My online recommendation is an older book about one of the men who led the expedition against the Chickamauga. It is Isaac Shelby, Revolutionary Patriot and Border Hero 
by Archibald Henderson. This is available as an online book. It's relatively short and over 100 years old. It's available free online at archive.org. As always, you can find links to my recommendations on my website. I've also included my recommendations and even more resources on my blog entry for this episode, which you can find at blog.amrevpodcast.com. My question this week is about British rule. One of you asks, why did English impose tyranny on the 13 American colonies and not consider them as the same nation by not giving those colonies any representation in Parliament, despite the fact that both spoke English and were of Anglo-Saxon origin? Well, your question seems to imply that powerful leaders are happy to share power with those who share their language and ancestry, but not others. Powerful leaders tend to get that way and remain that way because they judge wisely on who it makes sense to share power with and when crushing a would-be acquirer of power is the best course. Language and ancestry have little to do with that. Consider, for example, how British leaders work with local princes in India as part of their acquisition of that part of the world. Those princes did not share a language or heritage, but they had power in the locality where they live. The British found it much easier to work with them and share power with them rather than crush them. At the same time, when England was trying to take power from, say, Scotland or Ireland, it sometimes tried to work with local lords, who did not speak English at the time, when that was to their benefit. At the same time, millions of Englishmen living in England, who were not part of an aristocracy, had very few rights. Despite some of the universal language you may find in documents like the Magna Carta or the English Bill of Rights, those documents were really designed to benefit the aristocracy in Britain, not the common man. The lives of a peasant living in England or throughout the British Empire, their lives depended on the pleasure of the lords who ruled over them. Englishmen had no voting rights, nor did they have any other real political or economic power in the 18th century, despite the fact that they shared a language and ancestry with the aristocrats. British leaders, like pretty much all other leaders at the time, also regularly crushed challenges to power. For example, Scotland and Ireland had risings all the time. British leaders were not interested in sharing power or creating a just environment. They crushed those risings because, well, they had the power to do so and no one could stop them. Powerful elites may sometimes use heritage or culture as a way of gaining traction over the masses, but they have no illusions that they want to keep the power for themselves and they want everybody else to be serving them. So shared culture has very little to do with shared power. When it came to the American colonies, the leaders in London had largely allowed them to rule themselves with minimal restrictions and a great deal of rights as well as providing assistance in the form of military protection. Leaders in Britain did not do this out of the goodness of their hearts. They did it because they wanted to encourage British colonization of North America as a way of bolstering their land claims against other powers like France, Spain, and the Netherlands. By the 1760s, with those land claims fairly well established, British leaders thought they could extract more wealth from the American colonies just as they had done in other places like Ireland, which also had no representation in Parliament. 
The problem was that the British leadership misjudged the power relationship of Britain versus the colonies by that time. They did not think the colonies would unite in opposition to Parliament and could be picked on piecemeal. They also thought that the colonial military abilities were lacking and that despite being able to raise an army from their large population, that colonial army would never stand against British regulars. Therefore, British leadership opted to crush the challenge to their power rather than try to compromise with it. This misjudgment in the power relationship became apparent when the Americans kept the armed revolution going for three years, including the major military victory at Saratoga. After that, France allied itself with the new United States. So by that time, Britain had realized their misjudgment, and at that point they did offer to share power with the American leaders. However, by then it was too late. The Americans believed they had the upper hand and had no need to compromise and return any power to London. The American leaders, recognizing their own power by that time, rejected any solution that did not recognize full independence. So that's a long way of saying why didn't London grant more power to the colonies? It was because they didn't think they had to, and it turned out they were wrong. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please email me at mtroy.history at gmail.com or reach out to me on Twitter, Facebook, or other social media. I will be more than happy to try to answer if I can. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.